Welcome to the Castaways. I'm Sarah. And I'm Kelsey. And happy Valentine's Day to all our listeners out there. In this episode, we'll be discussing everything from brokenhearted widows to massacres. But before we dive in, I wanted to start off the episode with something a little bit more Mm lighthearted. So Sarah, happy Galentine's Day. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it's a card. It is. It says, Happy Galentine's Day. (laughs) You're my chosen one. (laughs) It's a UFO abducting a kid. (laughs) I'll post a photo of this. I'm glad you like it. I made it with my own two little hands. Wow. (laughs) How creative. I also have something for you. Oh! (laughs) I saw this today and thought about our episode last week where we discussed aliens Mm. for the first time. So the card is very fitting. (laughs) It is! Yes. Yep. They go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So I had to get this. Plus, we're 90s kids, so we grew up with this. So there you go. (laughs) It's another shirt. I was going to say it's another shirt. (laughs) Oh my god! Yeah. It's E.T. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I loved mm. it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. It's it very love cute. It. <laughs> it is very mm-hmm. cute. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Any treat yourself plans <laughs> for Valentine's Day this year, Kels? Yeah. <laughs> if you count treat yourself as. The good old devil's lettuce, Mm. some ice cream, and (laughs) many episodes of Arrested Development. Marry me. (laughs) That show is responsible for my fairly embarrassing crush on Will Arnett. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're not magic trick Michael. Nope. (laughs) They're not one singular magic trick. (laughs) They're not magic tricks, Michael. They're illusions. <laughs> uh, How about you? Any V-Day plans with you and Abby? It's on a Tuesday this year. Yeah. Uh, and I work at the university and at the float center. It's sensory deprivation float tanks, but... <laughs> when God him love you. <laughs> <saw. laughs> you know? Anyways, I'm out from 9 a.m. to like almost 9 p.m. that day. Oof. Yeah, I hate Tuesdays. Uh, so maybe I'll just like make us a nice dinner the night before on Monday because I'm out at four that day. Yeah. Have our celebration that day. Oh, I got a cute Valentine's Day flash tattoo from my good friend Jazzy. It's a little ghosty boy <laughs> and one of those like vintage heart shaped little cards. Yeah. And he's saying, be my boo. <laughs> I love it. It is very cute. Yeah. She also just posted this ghost face flash where he's on the phone and I just oh, need, yeah. I need it. I yeah. need it. <laughs> I love Scream. Yeah. Yeah. Skeet Ulrich though. Pff. Hello. Yeah. Hey, hi. How you doing? <laughs> What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, Halloween, 1978. Ooh. Classic. The OG. Mm-hmm. I watch it every single Halloween. Mm. So I just, I 
love that type of horror where the threat is almost this like faceless entity and it could be anywhere at any time so you never really know if it's human or not Mm -hmm. oh that's the kind of horror that i love Mm -hmm. and speaking of love our topics today are related to all things love good and bad till death do us part you know the kinds of tales we're talking the poetic oh my god my notes say Trash the poetic trashed types. <laughs> Tragic types. The poetic tragedy types. <laughs> We're getting very Jack Kerouac in today's episode. <laughs> ah. The poetic tragedy types from oldstyletales.com, they say... Romance has always had a dark side. Something sinister, possessive, even fatal lurks behind the desire to attract and be attracted. For centuries, something spiritual, even supernatural, has been suspected in the ways of lovers in the night. Shakespeare called lovemaking the beast with two backs. In many ages, the lust of man for one woman has been blamed on witchcraft. The French refer to the sleep that follows intercourse as le petit mot, the little death. There is a night side to our amours, a dark, animalistic release that takes place when we are alone with our love, drenched with shadows and candlelight. There's something primitive about romance that returns us to our less civilized forms, and for some of us, this is one of the few moments that we can sense our relationship to infinity and the realm of spirits. Consequently, romance has become one of the most prominent themes in gothic fiction, from Dracula to the Phantom of the Opera, from Wuthering Heights to the Raven. Nothing bridges the gap between reality and imagination, the physical and the spiritual, quite so nimbly as carnal attraction, and no genre is more capable of deconstructing these emotions as horror. So, all of this considered, Kels, do you want to start us off today? Sure. And might I say, what a great quote. I know! Yeah, yeah I, that was just verbatim. Right up. It was, it was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, we begin today's escapades with Rodolfo Pietro Filiberto Raffaello Guglielmi di Valentina de Antanguala, or as you might know him, Rudolph Valentino. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a name. Right? But it's very fitting, mm-hmm. as he was the sex symbol of the 1920s, starring in well-known silent films such as The Sheik, The Eagle, and Blood and Sand. He earned quite a handful of nicknames, including, but certainly not limited to, The Sheik, The Great Lover, and The Latin Lover, mostly due to his extremely dedicated fan base, which heavily skewed towards women. His passing, at the very young age of 31, sent his fans into mass hysteria, and this would later help cement his place in cinematic history as a cultural film icon. Though passing from this realm early on, Valentino seemingly stayed around to apparently dine at one of his favorite restaurants in New York City, the Astor Room, which has since sadly closed. 
Diners at the restaurant claim to see Valentino sitting at the bar sipping a martini, and others have said that they watched him walk through the restaurant on multiple occasions, weaving between guests and tables. Hmm. Like, he owns the place. Yeah. (laughs) But that also tells me that that's probably not a residual haunting, Mm -hmm. if he's, like, making his way through objects. Now that it's closed, do you think his ghost is still there? (laughs) Like... If you, okay, if you could have a drink with a ghost of a departed actor, who would you choose? I feel like I might already know the answer, but. Someone who's died? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Ooh, that's a tough one. Honestly, the only person that's coming to mind is Leo DiCaprio, and he's not dead, so he doesn't count. That. One Heath Ledger? <gasps> ah, ah, of course. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. God, Sarah. Oh my God. Love you, Heath. I stayed home. Well, by home, I mean at Kelsey's house. Yeah. The morning that we all found out that Heath Ledger died. We saw it on like the yeah. fucking Today Show or something. Yes. And I was so distraught. I did you not go to school. You stayed home. Yeah. I went to school. You did. And you stayed home with my mom. I did. That's right. So yes, Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. Of course. Mm-hmm. Mine would be Catherine Hepburn, I think. Ooh. Just because she has to be so much fun. Oh, sure. <laughs> Valentino's apparition also seems to be a traveling one. Since he's seen throughout Los Angeles, too, Caretakers of Valentino's Hollywood home, which actually had a west view of Cielo Drive where the Polanski Tate estate Mm -hmm. sat, started having experiences almost immediately after the actor's death. Mm -hmm. The claims, which continued until the house was raised in 2006, are pretty wide-ranging. Caretakers, multiple owners, and visitors of the home heard footsteps throughout the house, watched doorknobs turn on their own, which then always led to the door in question opening or closing. And the apparition of Valentino was seen periodically throughout the house. Valentino's also seen in various other places throughout LA, including on the land his horse stables once stood, in numerous restaurants such as the Musso and Frank Grill. He apparently really loves restaurants, I guess. Same. (laughs) Yeah. And he's been spotted in different hotels across L.A. too, though he's most frequently seen at the Knickerbocker. Thankfully, Valentino doesn't seem to be alone in L.A., as he's often spotted with his beloved dog, Kabar. Aww. Yeah. A Doberman Pinscher Great Dane mix. Big doggy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kabar was actually a gift from a fan, but it was a love at first sight between him and Valentino. Oh, it's like me and my Chloe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From the day that Valentino was handed Kabar, he made sure to have the dog sleep in the same room with him wherever he went. Aww. You know. Unfortunately, Valentino didn't take Kabar on his trip to New York in July of 1926, and he ended up passing away before the two could be reunited. Oh. Valentino's brother, who was dog-sitting Kabar during the trip, said that around the time that Valentino had died, Kabar let out a series of mournful howls, loud enough that dogs in the neighborhood soon started howling too. Hmm. 
It wasn't known yet that Valentino had passed, but Kabar somehow already knew that his human was gone. Oh, that's sad. I know. His howling lasted into the night, scaring one woman so badly that as she drove by the house, she fainted and almost drove off the road. Wow. Yeah. Valentino's brother said that Kabar remained restless, eventually running away from home. The family didn't see the dog for months, but he did return about half a year later. Unfortunately, Kabar was starving and his paws were shredded raw almost to the bone. Oh my god. I know. Though a vet was called, Kabar refused to eat and he eventually passed away in January. He was buried in the Los Angeles Pet Park in Calabasas. Though Kabar left this mortal coil almost 100 years ago, his apparition is still seen walking throughout the cemetery. Mm. People who visit his grave have said that they've heard barking. Some have claimed to feel something rubbing against their leg. I know. And one person has said that while paying their respects to Kabar, they felt something lick their hand. I know. That's so sweet. Aside from the cemetery, Kabar is regularly seen walking the grounds outside of Valentino's old Hollywood home, mostly in the springtime. Hmm. A group of spiritualists perform at the home during a party on May 6th, 1948, on what would have been Valentino's 53rd birthday. Both the mediums and party guests swore that at one part during the seance, they saw the spectral image of a dog leap through a closed window. Hmm. I've certainly seen, heard, and felt my cat Mittens for a few years after he died. But do you have any experiences with passed on pets? Mitzi. (laughs) My little Mitzi toes. (laughs) Actually, no. All of my childhood pets are, well, almost all of them are still alive. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Billy Joe, the black cat. A girl yeah. <laughs> named after Billy Joe from Green Day, of course. Of course. Is like 23. Yeah. The other ones are still here, too. I had a rabbit, Sassy, who passed on. She was so cute. A little white rabbit. But I don't think I've had any experiences mm. with her. She was a cute little gal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sassy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So for my first story, I'm just going to read straight from the website because it's a nice write-up yet again. And this is from notebookofghosts.com. It's actually two ghost stories, but they're both kind of short. So the article starts off with a Poe quote. Then I'll just go right into my tales of love. (laughs) (laughs) Deep in earth, my love is lying, and I must weep alone. Edgar Allan Poe. They say tragic events can leave spirits on earth, and passionate love so often ends in tragedy. They also say unfinished business can leave souls wandering the earth. How often have we felt a romance end without closure? Today, on the most romantic of holidays, I thought we might explore these stories of love. Love so passionate, it leaves a heartbroken, supernatural stain on Earth. I just like the word supernatural stain. Mm -hmm. Good descriptor. This one's called The Bride on the Bridge. 
In Stowe, Vermont, lies a covered bridge that they call Emily's Bridge. There are several versions of Emily's sad tale. Some versions say that Emily and her boyfriend were meeting at the bridge to elope since her parents did not approve. He never came, and she hung herself from a rafter. Another version says Emily was left at the wedding altar. She hopped on a carriage to find her love. When she reached the bridge, one of the horses was startled and she died in an accident. Some versions say that she was killed by a runaway horse on her way to the wedding. Whatever way you put it, Emily reached a tragic fate. Visitors to the bridge have reported scratch marks on their cars and their bodies, strange noises like footsteps, ropes tightening, and a girl screaming. If you park your car on the bridge, you might hear banging on the car or her body's feet dragging on the car's roof, and that's terrifying. That is the creepiest thing. Yeah. I hate that. No, I don't like that at all. Mm -mm. For my second spooky short story today, spooky shorts, because it'll scare the pants right off you. Ha! We're riffing off of our last episode on the Bermuda Triangle, but this time it's a deathly love triangle. Ooh. The Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine, Florida, is the oldest masonry fort in the United States. The site itself is dripping with paranormal activity, but today we focus on an affair that led to murder. In 1784, Colonel Garcia Marti brought his young wife, Dolores, to the fort. He wasn't the most devoted husband, and he often ignored his wife. Thus, she found other ways to spend her time. She began an affair with her husband's assistant, Captain Manuel Abella. Dolores wore a very unique perfume, which Garcia smelled on Manuel one day. Shortly after, Dolores and Manuel both went missing. Garcia told everyone that Dolores had returned to Spain and that Manuel had a special assignment in Cuba. About 50 years or so later, a hidden room was found in a dungeon behind a brick wall. The remains of a woman and a man, some versions say they were chained to the wall, some say they were in a pile of ashes. Sightings of a woman with a white dress have been reported on the site. Could it be Dolores? I hate the dungeon. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ew. Yeah. And we say it all the time, mm-hmm. but always with the white dresses. Always. Always. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually surprised that my next story doesn't involve a white dress mm. because it is the perfect haunting for one. Mm. And the lights agree because they just flickered pretty oh, heavily. Quite a bit. Yes. <laughs> Built on ancestral land of the Nipmuc Nation by the Howe family, the Wayside Inn in Sudbury, Massachusetts, originally named Howe's Tavern, which I think is kind of funny because we have a Howe's Cavern up here, (laughs) is actually America's oldest inn, dating all the way back to 1716. The inn was frequently visited by great dignitaries throughout the centuries, including people such as George Washington, my favorite historical figure ever, the Marquis de Lafayette, mm-hmm. Lydia Maria Child, David Thoreau, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Mm-hmm. Longfellow even wrote a book of poems while he stayed at the inn, titled Tales of a Wayside Inn, which was published in 1863 and from where the inn would get its second name. 
Our ghost story technically starts in 1798, though, with the birth of Jerusha Howe. Known locally as the Belle of Sudbury, Jerusha was a tall, beautiful, outgoing woman who helped run the inn alongside her brother Lyman in the early 1800s. Not only was Jerusha educated, which was uncommon for women at the time, but she was a great singer and piano player too. She's even said to have owned the first ever piano in Sudbury, and people, of course, would flock to the inn to hear her play. Many men in the area wanted to court Jerusha, but because she was very proud of her English heritage and upbringing, she kind of looked around at what Sudbury had to offer and came up with the conclusion that everyone was pretty much a country bumpkin. (laughs) So she decided that she would wait for a proper suitor. Enter the Englishman. That sounds like the name of a movie. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Mm -hmm. It's also a plot. Well, I'm sure it's a plot to a movie, Mm -hmm. but this Mm -hmm. is... I don't want to say cliche, but (laughs) it's a tragic love tale for sure. Mm -hmm. We don't know what this Englishman's name was, but regardless, the two fell in love and planned on getting married. At some point, the Englishman told Jerusha that he was sailing back to England to get his affairs in order before their wedding, but unfortunately, this would be the last time that Jerusha, or anyone in Sudbury, would hear from him. It's unknown whether he died at sea or he abandoned Jerusha, but nevertheless, this sent Jerusha into a depression she'd never get out of. At the age of 44, Jerusha died of what people said was a broken heart. Hmm. However, Jerusha is still seen and heard frequently at the Wayside Inn, specifically in room 9, which is the room she stayed in when she worked at the inn, and room 10, where she would do her sewing. Guests who have stayed in these two rooms have reported smelling the scent of citrus perfume, which Jerusha was known to wear, and some have seen faucets turn on by themselves. Mm. Others have claimed to hear a woman crying in the middle of the night, and one person has even said that they were woken up in the early hours of the morning by a woman who touched their shoulder, who they then watched walk to the end of their bed before the woman vanished. Mm. Workers at the inn have claimed that windows will open and close on their own. Curtains will move as if somebody has brushed up against them. Piano music will echo down the halls and people will get touched by an unseen force. One night, Watchman even said that something invisible gave him a back rub. How considerate. I know. (laughs) I give you my consent. (laughs) A local paranormal team who investigated the inn said that during the night, they caught a black mist rise from out of the floor. No. (laughs) I know. Where it hovered over the bed in room nine before it dissolved into the wall. Oh, I hate that. I hate it so much. A fun tradition of room nine, however, is the secret drawer society. Starting in the 1950s, guests staying in Jerusha's room started writing and leaving notes about love, hoping to heal Jerusha's broken heart. In fact, so many left notes that others were quickly running out of places to put them, so guests started tucking them into drawers, eaves, beams, and every nook and cranny of the room that they could find. The tradition continues on to this day, and so it's a fun little puzzle that Room 9 guests can partake in. Write and leave a note, and search the room up and down for other letters that are stashed away somewhere. (laughs) 
Zach Baggins of Ghost Adventures fame stayed in this room during the show's fourth season, and he wrote Jerusha a poem. Or tried (laughs) writing, anyway. Filmed during the winter, Zach goes outside and paces, trying to craft a poem for Jerusha. He starts reading his poem aloud on camera, and he opens up with, You are like the sunshine of my eyes, cause when I look at you, I'm surprised. Your smile glows like snow, to which Zach then crosses out that line, calls himself and the poem stupid, and then he slips on ice and falls flat on his back. <laughs> I I don't think he ever finished the poem. <laughs> so while most of the secret drawer society notes are written by people on their honeymoon or celebrating an anniversary, a good number of them also describe supernatural occurrences too. It's estimated by the innkeeper that out of the 4,000 notes the inn currently has, about 10% of them describe paranormal activity. Zach even said that he left a note too, but the workers at the inn removed it for safekeeping before anyone could find it themselves. Hmm. My favorite note, though, has to be this one written by an unnamed occupant of room 9. Yes, the ghost was here for us. Either that. Or they have some heavy-duty plumbing issues. (laughs) Plumbing issues? (laughs) Oh, we gotta remember to drip my my sinks tonight. Oh, yeah. Audrey's in Chicago, so Kelsey and I are having a slumber party. (laughs) You know, new tattoos, pillow fights, matching PJs. (laughs) Just kidding. But it's so cold here. It's freezing. In New York tonight. Legitimately. The the wind chill is gonna be negative- 35. Never fear, though, because all next week is going to be in the mid and high 40s. So tropical, baby. Yes, it is. (laughs) So if you hear like glass rattling or the house shaking, it's very, very windy. Yeah. Yeah. It's an older house, too. It's beautiful, but probably like, I don't know, like late 1800s. I feel like there's a lot of houses in Troy that were built around that time. Yeah. But man, when it's windy here, it just rattles. Yeah. And like, you can feel the houses shift. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oof. I don't don't like it. You can really feel it in my bedroom, and it freaks me out every time. (laughs) And speaking of the 1800s, born in 1842... Marguerite O'Donnell was one of 12 children born to an Irish and French immigrant family. That was almost going to be my name. Marguerite. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Marguerite Alange. That's my great aunt. Oh. Great, great aunt. Hello, great, great aunt. Great, great aunt. No, great aunt. Hello, great aunt. (laughs) Anywho. Marguerite was described as a French beauty, and she married young, at the age of 18, to a man named Octave Suave. Wow. Coolest name ever. He eventually left to go fight in the Civil War, but when he returned home, Marguerite noticed quite a change in her husband. Octave was no longer the young, vibrant man she once knew. Instead, he had returned a broken and cruel man. Yeah. 
Unable to spend too much time around him for fear of being mistreated, Marguerite soon went to work as a chorus girl at the French Opera House on Bourbon Street, where she lied about her age to get in, saying she was in her early 20s when she was really... (gasps) 33! Wow. (laughs) Such an old lady. (laughs) The the audacity of her to age. I mean, positively ancient. In 1878, the yellow fever epidemic swept through New Orleans, and maybe, unfortunately, because he didn't sound like that great of a guy, Mm. but it took Octave with it. Now on her own, Marguerite still continued to work at the Opera House, but gossip soon started swirling throughout the town, with people rudely calling her an aging showgirl who was hanging on too long. I know. That's so mean. It's brutal. So ageist of them. I know. However, at the turn of the century, Marguerite became the paramour of a rich and very elderly man who ended up dying three months into their affair, wow. inheriting $10,000 from him, which would equate to about $353,000 in today's rate, mm-hmm. adjusting for inflation. Marguerite opened up Les Camilliers, a pastry shop right around the corner from the opera house. The shop was incredibly successful, and Marguerite soon had to hire another pastry chef to help out at the shop. She settled on the handsome 21-year-old Carlos Alfaro. Not long after starting his new job, Carlos started an affair with Marguerite. And then started another fair on top of that, too, with a 21-year-old street worker named Lisette Leboeuf. The pair set up a love nest on St. Anne Street, only a few blocks away from the pastry shop. Sadly, Marguerite eventually realized that Carlos had another woman in his life, and she tracked the pair back to their apartment one night, where she ended up walking in on them in bed. Overcome with grief and despair, Marguerite went home and shot herself. Mm -hmm. In a note that she left police, she swore that her spirit would seek revenge. I know. Only a few days after Marguerite took her own life, multiple people on Bourbon Street claimed to see quite an eerie sight. The visage of Marguerite, only instead of being painted up in her showgirl charm, Marguerite's eyes glowed red, her face was gray, sunken, and drawn, and her long hair was dragging on the ground behind her in a scraggly mess. That's terrifying. It is, yeah. Witnesses watched as Marguerite walked down Bourbon Street, where she turned right on Toulouse, then made a left on Royal Street, and passed behind the cathedral before turning on to St. Anne. Even more people, this time the residents of the building that Carlos and Lisette had a room in, saw the ghost of Marguerite walk into the building and up the stairs. No one saw her walk back down. The next morning, Carlos and Lisette were found dead in their room. Someone had turned up the gas on their small stove, and they perished during the night. Wow. I know. (laughs) Residents of New Orleans were sure that Marguerite's spirit had gotten her revenge, yet the sightings didn't stop there. For the next decade, her ghost was seen so frequently, always walking the same path, that local newspapers wrote articles about it, and she was soon dubbed the Witch of the French Quarter. 
Eventually, someone else moved into the apartment that Carlos and Lisette had shared, yet the hauntings didn't stop. While making a fire one night, the new tenant found a letter wedged between the mantle and the chimney, and they were quite surprised by the contents when they read through it. Addressed to Carlos, the letter was written by Marguerite, begging to be taken back. The tenant threw the letter into the fire for some reason, which is like rule number one, don't burn anything that is attached to the supernatural. (laughs) But as he did so, the ghost of Marguerite almost immediately appeared in his room. She shrieked and hollered, trying in vain to save the letter from burning. The unnamed tenant would go on to tell a local newspaper. As the letter turned to ash, Marguerite let out one final scream before vanishing. To this day, people claim to see her ghostly silhouette walking along the same path on Bourbon Street, and others claim that she still haunts the apartment, where she becomes particularly restless should another young, pretty woman stay in the room. If a ghost getting revenge on their former lover isn't weird enough for you, though, perhaps this bit of the story is. The French Opera House burned down in the early morning of December 4th, 1919, hours before the rehearsal for Carmen, an opera about a fiery-eyed performer caught in a love triangle that ends in her violent death, was slated to begin. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. That's dramatic. I know. (laughs) I mean, very fitting for Mm -hmm. the Opera House. Oh, sure. (laughs) On Bourbon Street. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also going off of violent deaths, I wanted to cover the Valentine's Day Massacre. This story also is full of drama and tragedy. I mean, we're talking mobsters, guns, people posing as police, and Mm. obviously a literal massacre. Right. So from cbsnews.com, and this is written by Adam Harrington, this is Chicago hauntings, cursed bricks, noises, and poltergeists follow the never-prosecuted St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Throughout Prohibition in the 1920s, there were many beer and alcohol wars between rival gangs and organized criminals. Many of the men in charge of the gangs never ended up being persecuted by federal authorities because they did away with each other. That's one way to do it. Yep, sure is. (laughs) It all came to a head in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood in the morning of February 14th, 1929. As Troy Taylor's historical essay, Blood, Roses, and Valentines, recalls, the events that led up to the massacre started in 1924 with murder of gang leader Dion O'Banion, who was the chief competition to Chicago outfit leader Johnny Torrio in the bootleg liquor business. O'Banion controlled the North Side operation, Torrio the South. After a brewery acquisition deal between the two men went bad, Torrio ordered a hit on O'Banion. The North Side gang vowed revenge, and a five-year war between the two gangs began. Torrio himself was later shot and seriously wounded. While he would survive his wounds and live to the age of 75, he decided to give up control of the outfit to none other than Al Capone. Ah, Capone. 
Capone's gang went on to take out O'Banion ally Jaime Weiss, leaving the Northside bootleg operation in the hands of George Bugs Moran, a bitter enemy of Capone's whom he wanted nothing more than to take out, Taylor recounted. Early in 1929, Moran and a henchman killed Pasquiliano Lolordo, a Capone associate, and Capone decided to have Moran done away with once and for all, Taylor also recounted. Capone arranged to have someone contact Moran and tell him a special shipment of bootleg whiskey from Canada would be shipped to a garage that Moran owned at 2122 North Clark Street. When a group of Moran's associates arrived at the garage, four Capone associates stormed in, two of them in civilian clothes and two of them posing as police officers conducting a raid and even arriving in a Chicago police car. They lined up six members of Moran's gang against the north wall of the garage, Adam Heyer, Frank and Pete Gusenberg, John May, Al Weinshank, and Albert Kachilik, alias James Clark. Also made to line up was a seventh unaffiliated man named Reinhard Schwimmer, a 29-year-old optometrist who apparently just loved hanging out with gangsters. The assailants took out machine guns from their overcoats and opened fire, according to the Encyclopedia of Chicago. But Moran himself was not present and thus survived, and Capone was in Florida at the time, and law enforcement could never actually link him to the crime, the encyclopedia also said. No one was ever actually tried in the killings. It's amazing what you could get away with back then. Oh my gosh, I know. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Tony Jabelski of Chicago Hauntings Ghost Tours notes that the men who were shot dead in the garage were not found for about three hours after the shooting. You would think the machine guns would have made a lot of noise yeah. and people in the neighborhood must have heard it, <laughs> which they did. But that decoy police car suggested to neighbors that the mm. police were there and the whole situation was under control, as did a little stunt after the massacre. The two men, dressed as police officers, handcuffed their accomplices who had arrived in civilian clothes and threw them in the back of that police car. The police car sped off with lights and sirens on and everyone was fooled. Very smart. It really is. It is. Mm -hmm. It was all because of a dog that the victims were finally found three hours later. John May, the mechanic for Moran's gang and a former safecracker, had brought his German shepherd named Highball to the garage that morning. Highball was not harmed at all, thank God, having been tied to a truck toward the back of the garage. The woman who lived in the apartment building heard the dog barking and wondered why no one was comforting the poor pup, but she was afraid to go into the garage herself, so she got a male neighbor and they entered together. One can only imagine the horror that they saw when they entered the garage. Yeah. The man ran out screaming that there were dead people everywhere. Oh my god. The garage where the massacre happened, which was marked SMC Cartage Company, was demolished in 1967. A Chicago Housing Authority seniors development now occupies the land. When the garage came down, the bricks from the building became collector's items, Zabelski said. This was especially the case if they had blood on them or bullet holes in them. But then a lot of stories started coming out that people were experiencing weird things after they got the bricks. Some reported that they were being haunted. Some were getting in terrible accidents or just getting horrific diseases. Some people started to think that the bricks were cursed. 
I would say so. Yeah, it sounds like it. Spraying all of the bricks with holy water probably wasn't a convenient option, so a Canadian businessman had the best idea. He thought, anyway, (laughs) why not pee on them? Which, um, what? (laughs) Pee? That's your first conclusion? (laughs) That's your best idea? That's fucking weird. That would probably give it more power. Yeah, that's just... What? (laughs) I mean, you're literally pissing on... A cursed object. Hello? (laughs) You want to tie something to you forever? That's how you do it. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. I do love how bricks come into this, though, because brick making had a lot to do with my graduate studies and thesis. Mm. And Troy, where we live, has a thing with bricks. Yeah. Like, people come here and leave with bricks marked Troy on them. Yeah, it's from, true. From, like, little cute corner stores here. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's a literal store that just sells Troy bricks. Yeah. It's cute. Mm-hmm. Anyways, anyways, back to Chicago. As multiple sources point out, Canadian businessman George Patey bought the bricks at auction. Chicago Detours points out that Patey first took the bricks on tour with him at stops at galleries and shopping malls and also tried to open a crime museum in 1969, but it was not a success. Finally, Patey reassembled the garage bricks in the men's room of his nightclub in Vancouver, British Columbia. I know. With the addition of a plastic screen set up in front of them, they reassembled the bricks and it became a urinal wall. What? Yeah. What? Uh, Yeah. And women were allowed into the men's room to see said wall. It's just weird. What? It's weird. That is. His nightclub, the Banjo Palace, by the way. Yeah. That's exactly what I would think he would name it. Exactly. It closed in 1976, and afterward, the wall was auctioned off again, one brick at a time. Some of the bricks were reassembled at the New Las Vegas Mob Museum. A total of 300 bricks are now on display there. In the new museum, they report hearing the sound of gunshots and men moaning and falling to the ground. That's horrific. It is. Also, tell them about the typo I had when we were talking about the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) It must have been, I think, probably the lake episode. Yeah. Episode seven. Mm Mm-hmm. And instead instead of the Loch Ness Monster, Sarah had accidentally typed the Loch Ness Mobster. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Loch Ness Mobster, you see? (laughs) I'm not pulling any funny business, pal. (laughs) So... Back on Clark Street in Lincoln Park, similar noises are heard. There are also reports that dogs tend to react going by the warehouse site, possibly picking up on the energy of that German shepherd that was found after the massacre. Or, you know, the ghost. Sure, yeah. (laughs) In old images from the massacre site, you'll see the neighboring four-story gray stone at 2120 North Clark Street with its ornate architecture and distinctive entryway columns. That building is still there, and Shabelsky reports the owner has told him that there's a lot of poltergeist activity that takes place inside. 
things flying off counters and falling off shelves. Many believe that there still is a very heavy psychic imprint over the land where the massacre happened, and I'm not surprised by that. No. Seven men were brutally gunned down, and the murders remain unavenged. And Javelski reports that the land will remain a yard for the Margaret Day Blake Apartments. It's located on prime real estate in Lincoln Park, but Javelski says the city has decided nothing will ever be built there again, ever. The end. I really like that they're at least respecting the area where this tragedy happened. Mm -hmm. And they're not building, I don't know, another Walmart or McDonald's. (laughs) Yep. Or a used car dealership. Sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's also what we have a lot of in Troy. (laughs) It really is. It's kind of overwhelming. You can find one on any corner. Yep. Mm -hmm. And... Speaking about finding things, Sarah, how's about you tell everyone where they can find us? How's about you tell them where they can find us, you see? Yes, she. (laughs) We are on Instagram at the Castaways Pod, all one word, and on TikTok at the underscore Castaways underscore pod. You can also send us an email at thecastaways.pod at gmail.com. Feel free to send us your spooky stories and we'll read them on the pod. So I just checked the wind chill and uh, it's negative 30. Blankets sound delightful. It really does. Yep. And just throw something on the TV and just sleep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Life is real wild when you're 29, kids. (laughs) Living it up. (laughs) Oof. Once again, I'm Sarah. And I'm Kelsey. And we're the Castaways. I mean, Skeet Ulrich, come on. Oh. Hello. <laughs> Wait, Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. And the thing is, I didn't question it. <laughs> yeah, Skeet. Skeet. Oh. <laughs>